we're going to open to conversation now and questions, comments, discussion about things that we've talked about. Alan? I think what I, the question I have is something you talked about in different terms. And the term that I have for it is invalidation of a person by mm-hmm. self. And of course, it starts early, you know, at the time of birth. Mm-hmm. Um, it's formalized, it's institutionalized, in fact, in our culture, getting more so. I think that invalidation uh, of a, you know, a baby as a human self um, is something that, that permeates every aspect of a person's being for his life. And I think, you know, for example, well, for example, ignoring a baby's needs was the thing to do when I was born in the 40s and, and, and 40s and so on. And there was a revolution caused by Benjamin Spock. He said, pay attention to the baby. Um, and I think that that's, that's reverberated all through my life mm-hmm. and all through our culture mm-hmm. and gives rise to an extraordinary numbness because the sentient needs of the sentient being are ignored and are unrecognized. And how does the person recognize that as, a, as he or she matures? Mm-hmm. And so you become numb. And I remember a great revolution against that, a, a bloodless revolution, which occurred in the 50s, not the 50s, the 60s, um, with things like ethanol, mm-hmm. where, uh, where people were teaching touch, and touch could sometimes change things dramatically. Mm-hmm. But anyhow, it's, it's gotten much worse now because the, the, the changes we had in the 60s, the 70s, part of the 80s, are completely reversed. And the culture now is much worse than it was in the 50s. And I suspect it's similar to what was happening in the 30s, where the whole culture is invalidated. Our culture is invalidated. Our culture is being destroyed. The hopes and dreams of our children are being, being trashed by a small segment of society who has the power because of wealth and connections of similar segments around the world. Are you suggesting that on a grand scale we're all traumatized by that? Absolutely. To some extent? Yeah. Because what is our response to it? You think people would be angry as hell? We look at ourselves, we are what? No. We have no response. And those of us who do have response, like our young people, who have to join Occupy Wall Street, you know, and if they have a significant position of leadership, they have a good chance of being whisked off to one of their re-education camps, as they call it. And God knows what's happening there. So I, I think that, you know, it's, 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 gotten, it, it's almost like we need some kind of sensory awareness therapy. There you go. Similar to what you've been talking about. Mm-hmm. At a whole cultural level, we don't have it. I think I, I agree. And I think, you know, one of the things that is um, the motivation behind the idea that I have of a Dhamma village is to create, a, you know, a, a grouping of people who can live at whatever precept level they're at, 
and where the concepts of Dhamma and awareness and um, insight and generosity and non-harm are in various different things that we experience in a village, you know, in a school system, in a medical system, in a nursing home system, in a hospice, in a store, and, and growing food. So that it's not, the meditation is not isolated into the cushion. It is actually in the whole of our life. So the vision that I have is about creating a place like that where people can come together and 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 begin the process of waking up in all aspects of their life. But I think, and so what I what I hear you say, and I agree, is, is that what we're up against is in endemic proportions, and we are needing a um, kind of a global response. But what I can know for myself is, is that we can start here, and we can start here. And as communities, like little um, grassroots communities, begin to have an interest in not being numb and being awake and alive and finding ways to support and nourish and cultivate that in small and meaningful ways in their lives and their families and their friends and their communities, then we have um, some um, contrast to this whole kind of widespread thing that's happening around us. I would like to add, Alan, that um, while I agree with you too, and it saddens me often when I think about ways in which our culture has moved. Um, And it's not just accidental, much of it is intentional. And I think the numbness that you speak of is also a a response to the over-stimulus of the market economy, which teaches us, if you buy stuff, you'll be happy. If you get this, you'll be happy. And if you watch TV and if you're reading magazines and you're looking at advertisements, you're drawn in that direction. You know, there's one of my favorite authors, Anne Lamott, as in one of her books, the phrase, um, retail therapy. She confesses that every now and then you just got to buy some you know, just, it, it feels good. But she's also, she's admitting something, but at the same time underneath there, she's showing a symptom, right? It's like, yeah, you can buy stuff. Let's go buy $50 of something at the store. <sighs> How long does that relief last, you know? Depends on your bank account, but for most people, about a week, maybe two weeks, you got to go do it again, right? And so we feel like we're being satisfied by all of these, by acquiring position and wealth, right, and things. And that numbs us to the deeper sources of well-being and happiness. And this numbing is is really, it's heavy. And yet, I don't get too depressed about it. I'm not sure if you're depressed, but your tone was, was quite negative, and I think rightly so, because there is also a tremendous amount of hope. Look, in the town of Colorado Springs, we have these kinds of events regularly. Look, in the town of Colorado Springs, we have vibrant sanghas. Look, in the town of Colorado Springs, I have met so many people who are not Buddhist, you know, who are aware of these things. Various caregivers, people at grocery stores I've met. Speaking of grocery stores as a sort of, you know, side thing, look at how much the King Supers that I shop at in New Winter in the past six years has expanded its natural food and organic food selection in Colorado Springs. Okay, granted, it's the west side. Pardon? Even Safeway. Even Safeway, right? Yeah. I mean, so and people are getting a little bit more connected to the earth. They want to buy healthier products. They want to buy local products. They want to contribute to community. And I think people, uh, uh, an amount of people, it's a minority, but I think it's growing, caring about community. Perhaps not the Dhamma village that I'm not talking about, but something not that far away. I know many people who, when the economy crashed four years ago, agreed with me. Wow, you know, if it really, really crashed and everything went to hell and most of us lost jobs, 
think of what we could do. Those who owned houses could take in their friends who didn't have a place to live, and we could create communities of people together. I can teach, I can write, I can grow gardens, you can sew things, you can do carpentry. We all start working together, we share cars, we share resources. And I thought, that's great as a start, let's also bring into that spiritual work and share our spiritual resources. And you have this notion of communities of people working together in ways that are really wholesome. I, I think there are lots of little fires burning throughout our culture that show that there's a growing light in these directions that give some great hope. I really, really do. And there's a lot of literature along these lines, too, about coming back to the body. There's tons of it. Peter Levine's book is, his books are, they're prophetic. And a lot of people are picking up on it, you know, from a non-Buddhist perspective. He has interest in, and experience in Buddhism. I don't know if he is a Buddhist, do you know? I think he is. He has a lot of experience. But people are picking up on this, you know. So I think there's, there's, there's a movement growing, and it's going to grow larger and bigger, especially as we all feed it. And so I, I, I hope you won't lose too much hope, but rather take your good energy and your deep insight and bring it together with others to help create more goodness. They shall not crush us. Hmm. <laughs> well, what I'm thinking is that when that Arthur Lamont is no longer able to go to the store and buy something to Exactly. Well, her comment is a bit tongue-in-cheek, right? Yeah. Then... Well, that's knocked out too because she's invalidated and her ability to purchase is invalidated. Then something's going to happen. I mean, either she'll go totally numb or she'll get angry and she'll get vigorous and respond in a creative way. Maybe we all. Does anyone else have something to share, to ask? Well, I can just share that I have two little granddaughters, uh, four and six, and a little over a year ago, their father um, smashed their mother in the face, and he didn't see the blow, but they saw her the screams and the, saw the blood gushing out and all, all the horrible, you know, a minute later. And um, I was with them for a month after that happened, and it was just awful. I didn't know what to do except just try to be there for them. But it was like they were experienced, they had experienced a post-traumatic stress. And now, a year later, um, I've spent a lot of time with them this summer, and they're just happy little girls again. And they live in two houses. They have a dad and a mom, and we no longer live together, which is good. And um, it's like they just totally recovered. But I was, that was my first real traumatic experience with trauma myself, at least on a conscious level, um, was seeing their reaction to that event. You know, the the book that, um, the Peter Levine's books, many of them have a lot of first aid um, instructions that don't require a lot of training. And so one of the things that happens for people who are observant of somebody that they love is that there's this feeling of helplessness and not quite sure how to navigate. But the, the first aid um, and the instructions on how to interact with a child or an adult who's gone through something that's traumatic are specific and they're easy to, um, 
to pick up and to navigate. And so um, I would recommend anybody look at this stuff because it, it, you know you don't even have to be a grandma. You could just be a normal person. You know, in terms of yeah, of all people are constantly getting traumatized, and to be able to understand what's needed and how to respond to it, then our own sense of powerlessness is uh, alleviated when we are meeting a circumstance that can help facilitate health much more quickly. It's very helpful. Yeah. And that book, Trauma Through the Eyes of a Child, I found was particularly useful in working with how kids get traumatized and with language and examples on children and how to um, help them um, work it through. It was brilliant. I found reading his examples um, helped me re-envision some of my own childhood, which for various reasons I think I forgot. (laughs) Just like deleted, you know, like took pictures out of a photo album kind of thing, you know. Um, And I wasn't able to recall details because of his book, but I was able to create the intention that I would allow myself to feel some of the pain that resulted from my childhood. And that in my relationships with others and in my meditative practice, I became aware that there's stuff going on that's beneath the surface, that's not coming from my years in college or you know my past 10 years of teaching or whatever. You know, that the, There's stuff down inside that probably comes from childhood, although I'm not 100% sure whether it came from childhood or not. His books allow me to see, oh, there's this sort of underground subconscious source of either traumatic or stressful or painful experiences that often manifest in the body, and I've been training myself slowly to see. There's a helpful book by, do you know Tzultirm Alion? She had a book called um, Feeding Your Demons? I've heard of it. Based on the Tibetan practice of Cho, C-H-O. I haven't read it. Yeah, it's about trying to um, identify... Um, certain kinds of, you know, demons, that is sort of things that you've got in you that are problems, right, that are not necessarily traumas, but like them. And she has a, a way of addressing them that is based on ancient Tibetan tradition, but it, it honors them. It brings them fully into the body. She actually asks you to visualize its shape and its form and its voice, and then to externalize it in front of you and to talk with it and to ask it, so what is it that you want? What is it that you need? You know, and to fully enter into a conversation with it. And Peter's book have helped me to kind of move into that um, mode in my own life, you know, to be able to try to incorporate the pains of my life into my practice because they're underneath. You know, no matter how good a meditator are, you can keep deep insight into interdependent origination and into emptiness and you can have the bliss of Tara radiating down on you, but... Then there's stuff that those meditations just doesn't touch. It's like they're locked in a cement cellar, you know, and that needs to be opened. So uh, can we just take one more question and then shift the meditation? Yeah, Yeah. sure. John. Uh, I experienced trauma in Vietnam 45 years ago, and then I spent 30 years as a psychotherapist with the Veterans Administration with the Department of the Army dealing with traumas. And you bring up a very interesting uh, point sort of a backwards sort of way, what we call pre-morbidity. So that's why people don't experience trauma the same way. If they experience the event, the life-threatening event beyond normal human experience, and their response to that event is varied and different. We 
we've seen that in the past three or four, five, six wars that we've had. Some people don't miss a step after going through very, very traumatic kinds of experiences. Other people are debilitated the rest of their life mm-hmm. because of that experience. And part of it has to do, the good part, half of it has to do at least, is the pre-morbidity. What characteristics are brought to that traumatic experience, life characteristics, that have either allowed a person to internalize and absorb that experience into their psyche, or taking it outside of themselves to the extent that the absorption will probably never occur. Why is it called pre-morbidity? I'm missing the morbid part of it. It's pre-morbidity. In psychotherapy, we call it pre-morbidity. That means what happened before. What happened before the experience uh, in your life. So, what we found in Vietnam is very, very many uneducated minorities, uh, people without many resources, financial, psychological, family, etc., had more difficulties in some ways than those individuals, white Anglo-Saxon college graduates going off to war, you see, because of their upbringing and the ability to absorb the experience and define it in a different way. You see, that's the struggle that the military is going through now with Iraq and Afghanistan. Big time. Because PTSD is not PTSD for everybody. My experiences in Vietnam would classify me as having post-traumatic stress disorder, but that's not the case. You see, that somebody else's same experiences, it would be the case. You see, so it depends on what you bring to any kind of traumatic experience. If, if you define trauma as life-threatening, beyond the realm of normal human experience. I, I, I would agree that it entirely depends on how you are perceiving it. And so it's not only that you're in something that's life-threatening, it's the way that you're perceiving it that way. And so it has all to do with the way you experience it rather than to do with the, exper- the, the event itself. And so you can have uh, many different people experience ostensibly the same thing and have completely different effects and even reports of what happened. You know, so it's not the it's not the thing itself. It's how you how you perceive it and what you do with it. Okay. For some people, then it's not trauma. Right. Exactly. Right. Exactly. Some it is trauma. Right. And, and that's, that's some it is, but they repress they repress it. They're so skillful at repressing the symptoms that it was trauma at the moment, but they just push it away. There's no evidence of that in the literature. The people that don't experience uh, uh, trauma on a long-term basis have been repressing it. There's much more evidence about the pre-morbidity. What do they bring to the experience? What do they do? do? I'll give you an example. In Vietnam, everybody was deployed as individuals. You're going, you're an individual, you're thrust amongst a bunch of strangers, whereas in these wars, everybody goes as units. You see, you already know all of your comrades. You 
trained with them. You lived with them. And that war, everybody just shot over there, you know, on a, on a contracted airplane, all strangers, filling up the airplane. That's a big difference mm -hmm. in terms of your support that you get in terms of the experience, you know. So the repression, there could be some repression. I'm not saying it doesn't exist, but there's no evidence that, that all of these highly functioning people mm -hmm. after the trauma have simply repressed, you know, the trauma. You see what I mean? Mm -hmm. As opposed to, it, it, it was it was not framed as a permanent kind of trauma. Yeah. It was, it was right. framed as a, you know, I had an auto accident out here. Three years ago, I'm over it now. You know, that kind of thing. Sure. So, but the, the framing, in a sense, is what makes it a trauma or not a trauma. Exactly. Right. It's not given in and of itself, as I'm saying. It depends on the perception of it. Well, you have to have two, two things, the event and then the perception. That's right. So I think with that, with that, I'd like to shift it into meditation, if that's okay. Yeah. Yeah. So coming into a sitting posture that feels relaxed and balanced. And just taking a moment to tune into the body. Notice where there is any tension and make a, an intention to relax. Now, bringing a focus that allows the whole body to come into view and just noticing a particular sensation that's present. Where are you experiencing it and how are you experiencing it? What is it that you're feeling? Do you notice that inside? Do you notice that pressing from the outside? What shape is it? Does it have a color? And is there an image that is associated with this body sensation? Now watching how it changes, how the sensation itself changes, how the images, if there is one, how it shifts, and how something else may appear. And if there's another sensation that appears, bringing attention to that, watching it. To experience it in the inside, to experience it pressing from the outside, or both. Does it have heat? Does it have movement? Does it occupy a space? 
What happens when you bring this kind of attention? Does it get bigger? Does it get smaller? Does it fade? Does it disappear? Does it pulse? Now leaving these sensations and coming to a sensation in the body that's very soothing. Might be the feeling of the air on the skin or the breath. Might be the feeling of the overall temperature or the sense of relative quietness in the room. A body experience sensation that's pleasant it's nourishing allowing the body to be restored and relaxed with this contact with this nourishing sensation. Coming back into the body and getting a feeling for what's present now. What is present? What is appearing? And what happens when you bring attention to that?
And again, interest to find, to be present with what is arising now. A prominent sensation in the body and bringing a caring attention to that. And noticing, are you experiencing it inside of your body, pressing from outside of your body? What kind of shape is it occupying? Is it moving? And if it's moving, what's the quality of movement and the direction of the movement? Does it get bigger or smaller when you bring attention to this sensation in your body? Coming back into the whole sense of the body sitting here, how are you feeling? Are you feeling grounded? Are you feeling spacey? Can you feel your whole body? How does your whole body feel? So this kind of meditation of working with sensations in this way is one way of working with stuff that's arising that has a tremendous amount of emotional charge connected to it. Just returning again and again and again to the body, to the sensation, and to the way it shifts and changes when one brings attention to it. So Dave, did you want to close with a kind of a summary? Yeah. I'd also like to add to her comment, just Alma's comment just there, that um, in addition to being with the body and its sensations, this practice can be very helpful if you add on to it sometimes, noticing your response to those sensations. So for example, when you ask yourself, so how does my whole body feel? Sometimes your whole body might feel, if you're lucky, warm, at ease, relaxed, almost floating, light. 
sometimes it might feel, as for some reason mine does today, I think I exercise too much, um, kind of tight and painful. That's how mine feels right, felt when I was meditating. My back, my legs, sort of just feel sore, right? What's your, how do you feel about that? Not just how does your body feel, but how do you feel about your body? Because sometimes when my body's feeling good, I feel like, yeah, I'm doing right, I'm doing something right here. Or sometimes when my body's feeling painful, especially when I'm in meditation, when I really notice it, there's a judgmental quality, a guilty mind that comes in and says, what are you doing wrong? You're not meditating enough. You're not stretching enough. You're not sleeping. You, you know what I mean? That comes in. And, and these that's also stuff that arises. Sometimes it's a little bit beneath the radar screen. We're just doing a body scan. How does the body feel? But for most of us, there's also an, a, a, an emotional tone, a kind of response to the body feel that's a bit more of a subtle mental reaction. And it's really important to look at that. Because I know in my own practice, I can be feeling aware of my body, but then I'll just shift and go, oh. And there's this whole resistance to how my body feels, a kind of anger about it, that's like a whole other layer. You know, and I, and I have to work with that as well. And so these are some of the things that we're trying to navigate, and we're suggesting that the body is a really important vehicle. So today's conversation shifted more into the realm of, of trauma. Maybe I'll add one point here that we didn't mention, although we might have alluded to it, that if you have had or are going through traumas, I, I hope that you won't think, as we've said just to repeat, that meditation or Buddhist books um, are likely to be the panacea of the cure-all. I think each of us can find other people to help us. We can find skilled therapists, skilled teachers of a meditative or other tradition, therapists of different kind, right? People who can teach somatic experience, people who can help us with body work, like Feldenkrais work, working with the body, people who can do massage on us to help get in touch with the body and release tension, craniosacral work, which holds the deeper body story skillfully and allows it energetically to discharge slowly. All kinds of ways in which we can seek help. And meditation is, in many ways, just a way that we can see what are some of the needs that we have. And some of them should not be addressed in meditation if they're particularly traumatic. So we're going to shift on Saturday to the third part of this class, which will be a little bit more of a workshop. We'll also talk, if we do... Um, more about different tools within the Buddhist tradition that help navigate issues and work with difficulties in life, including the wide variety of meditative practices. As you might know, the mindfulness practice of sitting and observing is central to almost every Buddhist tradition. The Buddha taught it, it seems, quite a lot in his lifetime. And Am and I will talk a bit about such kinds of practices uh, that one can do in the Buddhist tradition that actually address different parts of the mind, different parts of the emotion, devotional practices um, that can be very, very healing to different parts of our being. Every Buddhist tradition incorporates, well, not every contemporary one, but every pre-modern one in Asia incorporates all kinds of different practices that really offer a kind of smorgasbord of, of healing techniques. And so we'll... Um, give an opportunity to work with some of those and to talk about some of those. We may only zero in on two or three core ones, but we'll mention some others. Do you have a final, anything you want to add?
Um, only just an expression of appreciation. There are a number of people who came this evening with things of food and uh, questions about stuff that I needed. And just to let people know that there's so much appreciated because living here in Colorado Springs, the support is a little bit thin still. And so to have awareness that this is how I live and to, um, you know, this kind of effort is something that I find encouraging and supportive. And so I'm grateful for your tuning into that and, and responding in that way. Thank you all so much for coming this evening. We really appreciate it. I hope you can come on Saturday. If you can't, maybe let someone know about it because it'll be a lovely. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.